the World Health Organization has dubbed techno-stress, this notion that we're on 24-7 as the biggest health epidemic of our the next decade. We literally are you know, creating environments fueled by technology where people can never get to deep, meaningful thought and are feeling very overwhelmed and stressed. This is Innovative Speak, a show about how innovators around the world are leading us into the workplace of the future. I'm Sarah Schlafly. Our special guest today is Kay Sargent. Kay works for HOK, a global architect, engineering, and design firm. Kay has an incredible resume traveling all over the world to speak about workspaces of the future. Welcome to the show, Kay. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. You specialize in helping companies identify their unique organizational DNA. Explain to me what this means. <laughs> sure. So um, I guess I could equate it this way. If somebody came up to you and said, hey, could you design a wardrobe for somebody? You'd be like, yeah, sure. What is the, per you know, who, who are they? Are they male? Are they female? What age are they? What do they do? Where do they live? You know, tell me about this person. And we believe it's the same thing when somebody asks about a workplace and designing a workplace for somebody. And I think far too often uh, there's an assumption of what the ideal workplace should be. And people just, you know, provide that to everyone, but they don't really understand who it is that they're designing the space for. So we believe that every company has their own unique organizational DNA. And that DNA is made up of basically six strands when it comes to workplace. Uh, the six strands are the industry that you're in. If we're designing for a law firm, it's going to be different than if we're designing for a high-tech company or a government agency, et cetera. They, they kind of have their own little nuances. So it's important to understand that. The second strand is regional influences. And regional influences are not only different countries. You know, how I design something in London might be different than in Hong Kong, than in South America, than in San Francisco. But it also has to do with, am I designing an urban location or a suburban location? Is it in a cold climate or a warm climate? Are there traffic issues or not? All of those things have an impact on how we design the space and how people interact with it. Then the third bucket of that organizational DNA is corporate culture. Understanding what the company is about, because we believe that space should be the physical embodiment of what a company believes in their purpose and, and their mission and their the fourth is organizational structure, and I think this is the one that people take for granted the most. Uh, it really comes down to if you're very hierarchical, then you need space that supports that versus if we're designing for a company that's an ad hocracy or a meritocracy or is very flat. Those spaces need to be designed to be a physical embodiment of their organizational structure. Otherwise, things won't flow, and it doesn't support how the company operates. The fifth bucket is demographic, and it's not just about the generations, right? But it, but it is, you know, we have, we have four to five different generations in the workplace today. We have a whole new Gen Zs that are coming in. But it's also, do we have introverts or extroverts? Do we have uh, more women or more men? Do we have, you know, uh, a bigger ethnic, uh, ethnicity mix and, 
you know, how do we design space to really be reflective of the people that are in that space? And then the last one is the work styles. What are people actually doing? Are they heads down concentrative? Are they very interactive? So I want you to think about a high-tech marketing company in the middle of Silicon Valley and how that might differ from a a research and development, engineering-focused suburban location in Kansas City. Very, very different, uh, different attributes, and we need to understand that so we can create the right spaces for people. That makes sense. Um, there, there is such a difference between companies and cultures, even within the same city, um, much less around the world. I think what you said for the fourth point about creating space of, to support the organizational structure, because right now the big trend is the open office environment, but that might not, an open floor plan might not be the best choice for every single company. Yeah, I'm going to actually say that open office planning, uh, open plan is actually probably the wrong choice for the majority of people. Now, that sounds shocking to hear that come out of a designer's mouth, but I'm going to predicate that on saying that most people grossly misunderstand what open plan is. And I think, you know, if you look at the evolution of workplace, we had everybody in private offices, Then we went to this everybody in high-paneled cubicles. Then we had the recession in 2008, and everybody talked about collaboration and putting everybody in these open floor plans uh, with rows and rows of benches, et cetera. But uh, an open plan typically is rows of benches or open desking with some choices where people can go to, but it's typically assigned. And when people have assigned seats we realize that their mobility level plummets internally, right? They, they just don't move. They feel tethered to a desk. And so activity-based working really emerged out of how do we do this better? And it's less about how many people do we need to accommodate in a space, but what are the tasks that people are doing and how do we design for that task? And so activity-based working really has been around for 15, 20 years. Uh, it's, it's really... Um, hit the U.S. probably 10 years ago, and now all of a sudden I think it's coming into full steam. But there are other places in the world, like in Australia or in the Netherlands, where they've been doing it for much longer than we, and they've emerged beyond that. And so we've already seen the emergence of neighborhood-based choice environments, where we realize that people work better in smaller groups, and they want to have a home base, and they tend to be creatures of habits, but they still want options and choices. So it's activity-based working, but in neighborhood-type settings. And then we've gone, you know, we've had co-working come in, and then we've had um, agile spaces that are coming in that are really like scrums for small groups and uh, the emergence of memo-type spaces. So I think everybody throws all of that into open plan, but it to a purist and to designers, open plan is rows of seating, assigned desk, um, some choices and option, but it's really kind of a, a densification exercise. And that is usually not right for the majority of people. And so we really haven't done open plan for 10 years. We've really kind of gone beyond that. But I think everybody just kind of calls it open plan. 
And I think that when you don't fully understand the activity-based plans, and if you're trying to do this as a company on your own, you saw the trend of opening up the offices, removing the cubicles. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, well, what what else would you put in there besides this just an open plan? I, I don't know if yet it's hit mainstream, this activity-based design. But it's a really exciting idea and concept because then like, it can accommodate for lots of different work styles and help facilitate the collaboration that companies are trying to get out of the open workspace. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think here, here's the thing. We are truly untethered now. And you don't have to come to the office anymore. You can work from multiple different locations. You can work from home. You can work from a co-working spot. You can work from a coffee shop. You can work from your client space. We have to create you know, compelling enough environments that people want to come to them. And so if you think about it, the reason that people go to the office now isn't because you have to. It's because you're going there to connect with other people. And so I think the focus really shifted to how do we create environments that really focus on allowing people to connect with each other. But, uh, and so I think collaboration was uh, probably one of the most grossly overused terms and it, we just kind of went all in that bucket. But what we're starting to realize is there are a lot of people that just want to be with other people. I mean, you go to a Starbucks or a coffee shop or a Panera, not because you're working with all those people, just because we're human, we're creatures of habit. I mean, we, we crave being with other people. There's an energy that is created in your spaces that there's a vibrancy. Right, that you don't necessarily get when you're working in isolation. And so creating environments, even if people are coming together to work alone together, it's important. So there has to be a balance between collaborative spaces and heads down concentrative spaces and spaces where people just want to be in an in a, in a energized environment, uh, maybe doing independent work, but just in a space that has a as you know other people and is vibrant has the, the types of things that you might need printers copiers all of those things that you need. Hmm, I love that. We think of working together in a collaborative sense, but really there it's there's something more. It's that energy that you're getting just by working next to someone, even if you're not talking to them. Yeah, I mean, look, I think even people that are that say they're highly collaborative still say that they spend about 50% of their time doing heads-down concentrated work. But they like the ability to have access to other people and to be in that environment and to kind of have be energized by the purpose, et cetera. So uh, if you think about that, then the design of the office is very, very impactful. And I think we've seen the rise of co-working because co-working has found one thing that corporate offices really are lacking today, and it's a sense of community. Now, it sounds strange, right? But I think that too long corporations have taken for granted that people have to go to the office, and so they've stopped trying to make it a great space to be in, and they've stopped both worrying about the community. They just assume it will happen versus putting an effort into making it happen. And corporate offices have lost their mojo because of that. And co-working, you know, you, you arrive at a space, somebody comes up to you, hey, how are you? Great to see you. We've got these activities. We've got this going on. We've got beer 30. You know, there is somebody that is curating the experience. And people thrive on that. 
They really do. Even though there's all kinds of things about co-working spaces, you know, no, no, my person, all kinds of stuff that just go counter to how people would ideally want to work. But somehow that sense of creating that energy, that community, that connectivity is trumping everything else and making it a compelling place to be. What are some ideas that you have of creating a sense of community? What are some ways that companies can develop that in their space? Well, so let's just take the most obvious, okay? The arrival experience. Okay. So for most companies, first of all, you got to find it, then you got to park, then you got to get in, then you got to go through some kind of security in the building, especially here in the U.S., right? Very depersonalized. You know, you, you're, you're being checked in, then you got a badge, right? Then you got to get upstairs. And by the time you get upstairs, it's like you've run through the gauntlet. And then you arrive, and there's a receptionist sitting behind a desk in a reception area that is grossly underpopulated. And you kind of almost feel like you're interrupting her when you go over and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm here to see someone. <laughs> and then, you know, it's like, okay, great. Let me call, go sit over there. It's just this very impersonal experience. And it's not very welcoming. Versus if you arrive at a Ritz-Carlton, you know, they greet you on, uh, on outside. It's like they know your name. They welcome you in. They escort you. How can I help you? What can I do? Et cetera. And so today what we're doing is we're breaking down those silos and, and understanding that that experience happens before you even arrive in the building, but absolutely upon the reception. And so we're not really designing reception areas anymore. It's more like a common area greeting space where somebody is walking up to you with a tablet and, you know, look, most people have an appointment. They know you're coming. It's not like it's a surprise when you show up. And they know who you are because they can look look you up on LinkedIn and see who you are. They can probably pre-screen you and greet you and say, hello, how are you? You know, we understand that you're here to see, you know, Kay. And she'll be right down. Uh, we have already sent her a message that you've arrived. Can I get you a cup of coffee? Do you want to sit down? You know, make yourself at home if you, you know, you need to start working on something or whatever. And so it's more like a lounge area. And we're... It's populated. It's not one of these cold, sterile environments that you're relegated to and you're kind of like, you feel like you're waiting to go see the principal, right? Mm -hmm. There are other people from the organization that are in there. There are meetings. There are impromptu and formal things. There are people getting coffee. It's a lively thing where you instantly feel like you're welcomed and assimilated. That picture you paint just... It reminds me of when I've walked inside corporate offices and it historically has been that sterile environment. It's, um, you know, tile floors and everything very clean, but bare, very few furnishings and just a receptionist. And it, it feels a little bit cold and intimidating. So I love this, this picture you've painted of, you know, people talking in the space getting coffee, and having more of a warm, welcoming feel to it. And I think the other thing that's really important is, look, you go to a lot of spaces, I go to a lot of spaces. I could walk around 80% of offices that are out there today and have no idea what the company does or what they do. And there's really no statement about what they believe in or their mission or you know anything about them that gives them any kind of, of sense of personality or purpose. And I think... Today, people really want to work for a company where they feel like they're making a difference. They want to be connected to something. There's a social responsibility element. 
that if I have a choice and there's a company that has a strong personality or a strong mission statement that I feel like I can buy into, there's something energizing about that. It gives you a sense of purpose. It gives you a sense of pride. And I think that's lacking in a lot of environments that we see out there today. And one of the things that we really try to encourage our clients to embrace is make it an experience, right? Because today we're, we're really not designing environments anymore. We are really designing an entire experience. And branding has gone far beyond the wall tattoo of the name on the wall to the entire space speaks to who you are as a company. And it's, it's an energizing element to your staff who are there every day. Hmm. I love that because we think of branding kind of in isolation, but really branding can be every single touch point you have, whether they are a customer or not. Because with the, the word of mouth, you know, even if you're a vendor, that person has the potential to talk about your brand with someone else. Absolutely. It's a, it's a critical element. It seems like companies are trying to figure out how to bring their employees back into the office because, as you said, People can work from anywhere. Is this a, a concern that you've been seeing amongst companies that their their offices they're afraid no one wants to be there? So there's a massive debate. So yes, it is a, it is it is a concern for many many companies today, and, and it's a big concern because there's a war for talent right now. But there's a whole lot of companies that have given up on forcing everybody to come to the office every day and realized I don't need to see you every single day to be able to connect with you. And they're empowering their people. But I think it comes down to um, a business case and a business cycle. So I'll, I'll take you back a few years. A few years ago, when Marissa Meyer came into Yahoo, one of the very first things she did was say, okay, this work from anywhere, work from home policy, we need to end that and everybody needs to come back into the office. And everybody blew up saying, oh my God, you know, mobility is dead, external working is dead, everybody has to come to the office now. But if you think about it, Yahoo was at a point in their business cycle where they, they, had, they were behind. They needed to innovate. And when a company needs to innovate, you bring everybody in in tight quarters and really kind of create an environment, like an agile environment, that is ideal for innovation. But when you go into sales mode, everybody being in the office isn't really beneficial, right? Mm -hmm. And so you want to push them out when you're in sales mode. So if we have a company that is primarily sales and consultive, we're designing their offices more as meeting areas, but we don't want them coming to the office every day and sitting around because if they're not out with their customers, they're not making money versus a company that might be all about innovation, speed to innovation. Okay? If they're all scattered to the winds, it's hard to do that. And so it really depends on what is your core function, what is your business, and what cycle are you in. And most companies go through, you know, okay, now we're in this massive innovation uptick, and now we're going to be pushing things out to the market. And then we go through an innovation focus, and then we're pushing things out to the market. And so it can ebb and flow. And I think it has, you know, whether people are, are in the office or not, has much more to do with the type of business and the cycles that they're in. 
That's really interesting because again, it's it comes down to the as in your description, the unique organizational DNA of that company. I didn't realize how different their spaces would be need to design to support the way they operate. Well, and and here's the other lovely little layer that we're going to put on top of all of this. Most companies aren't homogeneous. I mean, the the entire company doesn't work that way. If, If we're dealing with a larger company, they'll typically have an arm that's research and development. They'll have admin. They'll have um, the sales group, they'll have the marketing team, they'll have multiple different components. And each one of those departments can work a little bit differently. So it's not just about understanding the, the company itself. Then you've got to dig down into, okay, now what are the groups that make this up? Because if I design a space that, you know, every single floor is exactly the same, you know, this one size misfits all, and I'm supposed to put lawyers and um, research and development scientists and marketing people and admin people all in the same space, it's going to be a failure because, you know, if you if coming to average is the best way to misfit everybody in this sense. And so what we really try to understand is not only the company as a whole and have a consistency, you know, kind of a consistent threads throughout it, but then you need to understand what, um, what the individual teams do and then, let's make it even more complicated, then you need to understand, okay, we're delivering um, your global standards. And so, you know, for years, companies managed their real estate regionally. But about 15 years ago, they shifted, and they really started managing them globally. And I think what they quickly realized is, I can't just come up with a standard and stamp it across the world. There's so many nuances culturally um, around you know around the world that we really need to take into account that we need to look at this um, region by region and so what we're really doing today is developing a cons- a global guideline um, that gives a ex- that gives a consistent experience and a consistent messaging and a consistent feel without every space around the world having to look exactly the same or being designed exactly the same. So, you know, the furniture standards in Asia are very, very different than those in the U.S. And e- even personal space and or what's acceptable or not from one culture to another varies. So we have to take into account all of those nuances when we're really developing these guidelines and standards for companies so that they can manage their real estate. That's amazing. That's, yeah, and I, and I think that the challenge is, you know, people always say, what is the workplace of the future? Well, there is no the workplace of the future, right? There, there is what is, there's a, a whole variety of options. And I think we've tried to grossly oversimplify this. We've tried to make it very generic and say, nope, this is it. This is what everybody needs and that's it. And they're happy. And, and yeah, people can muddle through, but you don't really want people muddling through. You want people to be in environments that really help them thrive. You brought up the question I was just about to ask was when you think about the future of the workspace, what is it that you see? I think it's going to be a much more um, fluid space. I think there's, there is a push right now for very generic, um, homogenized spaces that are quick and, you know, getting people down. And you know, people are saying we've, we, we have all this great sense of data and we can tell what people want and what they don't want. And we've got it down to, you know, this perfect art and science. 
I believe at the end of the day that we need to stop worrying about the real estate metrics and we need to start focusing on the human-centric metrics because 80% of a company's money is going towards their people. Only 10% goes to the real estate and only 10% goes to IT. And so everybody is so focused on how do we perfect the workplace and get it as tight as possible so we can control the cost. But if we do anything to negatively impact the people that are working in that space, then we're going to cost the company more money than we've saved them. And so we need to start thinking about what are the what are the environments where people really thrive and they're productive and they're happy and they want to be there. And so we see uh, environments that give people a lot more options and choices. Because if you think about it, the office really was designed or really kind of evolved you know, when we were in a kind of an uh, industrial or manufacturing mentality, you did one thing. When you finished, you handed it to somebody else. But now people really are doing a variety of things. What you do on Monday could be very different than what you do on Tuesday. And so not only do we need to accommodate all different types of workers and work styles and organizational structures and cycles, but we need to accommodate different people and different preferences. And so the only way to do that is to empower people through choices and options and treat them like adults and let them pick the spaces that are right for them where they're really going to be productive. Do you get some companies that resist this? Are they afraid of empowering their employees to choose where they want to work? Absolutely. And, and I'm, you know, look, I mean, I think there's a lot of companies that still manage by presence and not performance. If I can't see you, then how do I know what you're doing? How do I know you're being productive? And our argument is, look, if that's, if that's what you're concerned about, then you've got an HR problem, not a space problem, right? If you, if you don't trust the people that you're hiring, I don't know where to take that, right? That, that's, that's a whole different issue. Um, and I think what we really try to focus on today is, you know, giving people options and choices. But there's a lot of people that do resist it. They resist change and they resist wanting to do something different. But, you know, I, I, I don't think we've ever put somebody in an environment where all of a sudden they had lots more options and choices and they said, wow, I just no, this just isn't working for us. Right. I think it's very empowering and people really start to find what how they work best. And um, it's always beneficial for the employees and, and the employers. I'm really excited about what you mentioned the Netherlands are doing with these neighborhood-based places. Yeah, so there's two things. There's neighborhood-based choice environments within a workspace, and then there's community centers, and they're, they're different things. So neighborhood-based choice environments is this notion of taking activity-based working. So, so let's go through this evolution. You have open plan, everybody has an assigned desk, and you've got some options, but it's just rows and rows. Then we go to, okay, what, what are people doing? Let's design around those tasks, and let's not assign you a desk. 100% unassigned seating. And you just, if you need to be in a conference room, you go in a conference room. If you need a desk, you go and take a desk that's open, and you sit there. So it's 100% unassigned. But what we found is that people tend to be creatures of habit. And when you put people in these environments, introverts can shut down if they're, if they're too open and they, um, they don't, you know, they can see everyone. And people tend to 
want to sit in the same area or the same zone. So we picked up on this clue of, you know, basically Frank Lloyd Wright has always said, you don't design a dinner table for more than six to eight people because they can't talk to each other. And so if you look at social dynamics, people work really well in groups of six to eight, maybe up to ten. And so if we can create little zones of six to eight people, and we do that, we call it the power of six to the 48. You create groups of six up to about a neighborhood of 48 people. because 48 is when the dynamics of a group start to change. If you go over 48, I can't see your face anymore. I may not know your name anymore. Hmm. And so creating neighborhoods that are, are settings of you know, for 48 people that like, have options and choices within them. And now all of a sudden people feel like they have a home base. Their team is there. They know where to find people. Um, it, in totally open plan where you can sit anywhere in a, in a mass sea, you have no idea where people are. And it's hard to, you know, you can find them by the phone, et cetera, but there's no regularity or predictability. And it's almost too much choice. And you start having an erosion of corporate culture because people tend to be more loyal to the people they work with than the company they work for. So creating these neighborhoods within the space really helps ground people and create this kind of group mentality and yet giving people um, something that's predictable. And if somebody wants to sit in the same desk every single day, then that's your choice. But the person next to you might want to sit in a different desk every day and they have the ability to do that. Have you come across a headquarters and then have the employees be able to work from spaces that are near their homes, but it's not a coffee shop or it's not in their homes? Yeah. So Sun Microsystems, I think, was probably one of the first ones that did it, you know, probably 20 years ago. They created outposts or communities, offices and hubs where people could go to that didn't want to necessarily commute into the office every single day. And I think, you know, there, there was some success to that um, and some failure to that. Now I think what most companies have done is they've partnered with whether it's a co-working space and, you know, whether it's Regis or a serviced office provider to say, all right, we're going to have an agreement with you where our people can come and use your space on days that they don't come into the office. And, and part of this is driven by this notion that people want more flexibility and choice. Sometimes it's to reduce the demand and the amount of people that are at the headquarters at any given time. So you can you know, don't have to keep growing your real estate. And the other thing is to reduce the commute times and to you know be more sustainable and environmentally conscious. So there's a multitude of reasons why companies do that. And I, you know, almost every company that we know today has some arrangement to allow people to access different types of spaces when they're working, you know, in other locations. And I think part of this also is the war for talent today. You want to find the best people for work. Yet that best person might be living in a city that's in the middle of the United States, and they don't want to move mm -hmm. to where your office is. But you still want to be able to hire them because they're the best person for the job. So you're hiring them and saying, all right, fine, we'll, we're going to hire you and you can work there and we'll set you up in a, a serviced office or a co-working space that you can access and we're okay with that. And that's, I think, going to continue because the war for talent is going to continue. Yeah. And, and because people can work 100% remotely now for certain jobs, it supports that. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's interesting, too, is sometimes when you come to the office, and look, I am a mobile worker, okay? I, I live out of my briefcase. I live in Washington, D.C. We have an office in Washington, D.C., but I am all over the place. And sometimes when you come to an office, you can get um, immersed in all the different things of that office and maybe lose the bigger perspective, right? And or when I do come to the office, it is very, very intentional. And I make a point of seeing everybody and talking to everybody and being very, very effective and very efficient with my time versus if you're there every single day, you kind of start to take it for granted. You take, you take those relationships or connections mm. for granted. And I, so I, I think people have embraced this notion of you're not totally isolated if you're, if you're uh, working remotely. You absolutely can be connected. I, I'm starting to see that too, that, um, and, and companies are starting to see that it's okay to have a decentralized workforce because they, they're going after that talent. They want to attract the younger generation who may not be so excited about going into an office every day. There's several things that we're, we're seeing that are starting to emerge. It's going to be interesting to see how they play out. Uh, the Agile process has cultivated a whole uh, sector of agile offices that are really geared towards scrum areas for teams that need to be very effective and efficient. And it, I think it all stems from the, the speed of innovation right now. So many companies right now are afraid they're going to fall behind. That speed to innovation is critical. And so we're seeing agile offices and agile work environments starting to arise, and we're also seeing the rise of memo spaces, which are maker environments for mobile occupants. So there, it's almost like you have a scrum area or that agile space, but it bleeds out through the entire thing, and it changes you know, an office from being kind of a corporate setting to more of a maker environment, and it's kind of what we call the garageification mm -hmm. of space. It's to bring back that entrepreneurial spirit um, into the workplace and to create something um, amazing that people just, you know, instantly they're, they're inspired every single day to be innovative and to create, right? And I think the other thing that we're seeing is curated experiences and UX, user experience. It really is about creating amazing places that people want to be. And so that is, is, uh, making people think about what are the right environments and how do we connect people to not only you know each other in the building, but to other tenants in the building and then other people in the community and how do we create a destination and a place that people want to be and how do we uh, infuse uh, biophilia and access to natural elements into the workplace. So I think there's there's a much higher focus on people and creating environments where they're going to thrive and innovate. That is, I think, really, really exciting today. I think that's really what we're seeing going forward. That does sound exciting. I would love to check out some of the one of those three spaces, especially the last one when you touched on bringing natural elements into a space. I think that's a huge thing. I think we're bringing the outside in and we're bringing the inside out. And you know, I, I look if you if you think about a lot of the things when we talk about healthy buildings and and well space and ergonomics, etc. A lot of those things have come up 
because we've designed spaces where people are sitting stagnantly in closed environments for an extended period of time. And it's not natural. Not, you know, no pun intended, but it's not natural. And if people were up and moving more, the need for ergonomic settings would diminish. Not go away completely because you're still going to have periods where you're going to be working. But, you know, a chair that is designed so that you can sit comfortably for eight hours, well, the bottom line is you should never sit for eight hours in the first place, right? So it's, it's, it's correct. It's, it's addressing a problem that, um, we should fix the problem in the first place. And all these environments, uh, we talk about air quality, et cetera, um, natural daylight, all of those things. The, the natural inclination is let's retrofit the, the space, but the right one is how do we connect you more to it, right? So I was talking to a client recently in Southern California, and they were, they were talking about all of these things. And it's like you are in the one place of the world where all year round you can walk outside and be in nature, right? And it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a nice climate and it almost never rains. You need to design more spaces that connect that, that make those two seamless and take down the barriers between those two versus trying to retrofit the, the spaces you've enclosed to be more like what's right on the other side hmm. of that wall. Just take down the walls. And I think, you know, sometimes the, the answers are so obvious, but, but we overlook them. But there's a lot of places that you can't yeah. do that. So we need to we need to create great environments for where people can bring nature inside and and a lot of it, biophilia isn't necessarily always plants, right? It's natural elements, it's wood, it's water, it's all Sunlight. kinds of different things that we can bring into the space that really connect people back. Absolutely. And a view. Right? Uh it, you know, I think if you've got a great if you've got access to natural daylight but you're staring at a brick wall ten feet away. I'm going to kind of say that doesn't count. I mean, you still get the natural daylight, but, but a view is so much more important because it just, it, it, it has a calming effect on you. And today we're living in environments and in a time where we are so overwhelmed that we really need uh, spaces and elements that can bring uh, retreat and calm and, uh, Space. Well, that's that's something that I'm really interested in is how can space support your mental space? Because uh, our jobs are faster paced and it can be very stressful. One of your greatest assets is your mind. And I do believe mm -hmm. that in the United States, we don't really place much emphasis on protecting that. And a mental health is a huge struggle in our country. I'm not yeah. sure how it is around the world. The rest of the world is ahead of us. And there's a day of reckoning coming mm. to the United States. Um, in, in, in other countries, they've put many things in place to protect workers. They've basically said, you know, in France, there's rules and regulations that, you know, somebody can't be fired for not answering an email on the weekend. Uh, in Germany, they're shutting down people's servers at a certain time so they're not barraged by emails on their off time. In London and in you know, the UK specifically, they've um, really started to put a, a high uh, emphasis on mental health and uh, taking care of that. So here's, here's a handful of things that we can do right now that will help. Number one, we need to stop designing spaces that are overly chaotic and overly stimulating. People are starting to short circuit. 
We need clear delineations. We need clarity. We need purposeful. The things need to be designed with purpose. It can't just be, you know, this concept overload and this grossly overstimulated environments. Our kids are already overwhelmed. We don't need to put them in uber stressful environments. We need to be able to control our environments. There needs to be times where we want to be in um, lively environments, but we should also be able to find areas of retreat. We need to bring in elements of nature. We need to have uh, clear definitions. There should be areas where are very high tech focused and other areas where there is almost no tech focus. We need to have quiet spaces that you can go, that you can turn off the technology and disconnect from all of that because, you know, your, to your point, the Mayo Clinic is so worried about our inability to get to mindfulness if they have all kinds of courses now scheduled around that. And the World Health Organization has dubbed techno-stress, this notion that we're on 24-7, as the biggest health epidemic of our the next decade. And I think stress is going to be a huge factor going forward because we literally are you know, creating environments fueled by technology where people can never get to deep, meaningful thought and are feeling very overwhelmed and stressed. And that's going to be a big element as far as how we design going forward is to take that into account. Take that mm, into fascinating. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. This was very insightful. You have a wealth of knowledge on this subject. It's very impressive. We could talk for hours and hours and hours, but, but hopefully that gave you some of the highlights about what we're seeing today uh, as far as workplace. And thank you for inviting me to, to come on. Appreciate it.